want to ask you, church, to go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We sang just a while ago, through the death of Christ, death is destroyed. That truth is on full display in our text today, as this is one of the preeminent texts, one of the preeminent passages when it comes to the resurrection of Christ. And so I'll turn your attention to your outline. You'll see there, uh, that'll be our guide through God's Word this morning. Hopefully you grabbed one on your way in. You'll see there the, the title of this new sermon series, as I mentioned earlier, we're beginning our Easter series, first two weeks, preparing our hearts for Easter, celebrating Easter, and then looking onward from there. And I titled this sermon series, The First, and that comes clear here just a little bit. I'll, I'll explain that. For those of you who may not be familiar, on Wednesday nights, we have our midweek prayer gatherings as well as our generational discipleship. We have our youth and our kingdom kids meet and our child care and nursery, in which they do a tremendous job of discipling our young ones as well. Um, But for adults, we have our midweek prayer gathering. So we gather right here in the sanctuary, and uh, we have two different times of prayer during, during that prayer gathering, a couple of different focuses of prayer. The first... The first prayer comes at the very beginning of our time together. And in that prayer, we focus on petitions, all the petitions and praises uh, that we would live to the Lord at that time. So we'll take up prayer requests, right? That's what I mean by petitions, the things that we're asking of God. And so we'll, we'll take up prayer requests um, and uh, we'll listen to any praises that anyone might have over past prayer requests, right? And then I'll lead us in praying over these petitions. And then we'll sing, and then I'll break down the passage for that evening, and then we'll, we'll pray according to that particular passage. But this last Wednesday, I was particularly burdened by several of the requests that were offered up. From time to time, it'll seem like many of the requests, although they're coming from different individuals who have different things going on in their lives, they're praying for different things, it'll seem like... Uh, all the requests have a certain theme to them. It seems like there's many that are of the same general um, idea, the same issue. And I want to read for you. I brought my journal up here with me this morning. I want to read for you just a few of the prayer requests that uh, we had this last Wednesday. So the first one I'd written down was for uh, a man named Bill Baggett. He's the brother of our sweet friend, Anita Pinkerton. As you can tell, the Pinkertons are not here in their usual spot this morning, for they went to be with the family and, and participate in the celebration of life and all that. But Mr. Bill passed away as he was on his way down here to come visit with Anita and Dave. And then, of course, we had a prayer request lifted up for the Davis family, the family of Ross Davis, five-year-old boy from Mount Enterprise that was fatally killed in an ATV crash, or not crash, but an ATV accident. And then um, we had 
uh, a prayer request offered up from the Davis family in which, uh, uh, by, for a man named Dave Powell, whose son Joshua had passed away. And then also we had the, a prayer request offered up from our friend Miss Ebeth for a friend of hers, the Flowers family, who had a daughter pass away. And of course, we had several others. We had the daughter of uh, Mr. Mr. Jim and Miss Pat. Uh, their daughter Erin had a procedure. Asked you know prayer, continue prayers for my grandfather. Prayers for Lindsay Ayton. But those that were dealing with loss and death were particularly uh, burdensome to me. Particularly as I prepared for this sermon this morning. The reality is it's hard to build a church with the gospel message which preaches the vanities of this life and the infinite glories of the life lived to the glory of God looking to eternity. The message that the things which bring us earthly, fleshly pleasure are fleeting and ultimately empty. And therefore, everything experienced in this life is fleeting. It's hard to build a church with that message because it goes against the desires of our flesh. It's infinitely easier to build a church with the message of indulgence in all the earthly joys and the increase of earthly riches and pleasure. But you tell me, church, when you Consider that list of prayer requests when you consider those losses. And those are just the immediate losses that are close here to our church family, geographically close to us with the Davis family. When you look at and hear that list of petitions, which message do you think embraces suffering as a purposeful, sanctifying reality in this broken world? And which message has no answer for suffering? I don't know about you, but last week's sermon, as we've put a pause on our walk through the Bible for now, for this season of Easter, last week's sermon was pretty convicting in the most beautiful way possible. And so I I want you to hear this, church, as convicting as last week's sermon was, I became all the more convicted as I prepared for this morning's sermon, and really for this series as a whole. I became... All the more convicted, as I said, as I prepared for this morning's sermon and this series as a whole. And I can, became convicted at the, how, just how little we marvel at the resurrection of Christ. And my aim is that by the end of this series, we will treasure the resurrection of Christ and the power by which it emboldens us to live more than we ever have before. And I know that can sound hyperbolic and and maybe a little exaggerated, but I I want us to see, and as we will see over these next four sermons, all of our hope, all of our hope lives in attaining to the resurrection of Christ. And so this morning I've got five truths. You can see that on your outline. Five truths for us to see about the resurrection of Christ. Because it's the resurrection of Christ that causes us to have hope in the face of such weighty and difficult 
prayers and petitions such as what we looked at this last Wednesday. I want to ask you to stay in church in honor of the reading of God's Word as we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 23 is our text for today. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man comes also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray, church. God, as we come before your word, we seek for it to edify us for it to seek us out, for it to shine the light of your gospel, of the resurrection of you into our hearts. And may that edify us, may that mobilize us, may that empower us to live in obedience to your word, to live in obedience to your great commission, and to make this good news known. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, church. So, Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians sometime toward the end of his three-year ministry in Ephesus. So this would be around A.D. 53 to 55. Somewhere in there, Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians. The main focus of the letter of 1 Corinthians is for the Corinthian church to drop their divisive arguments and unite in the advancement of the gospel. That's kind of the overarching message and the overarching purpose behind everything that Paul lists out throughout this letter is drop your arguments, quit being divisive, unite in the advancement of the gospel. And we can see that overarching theme here in this chapter, in the first part of chapter 15. You can kind of see it lived out. So kind of back up a little bit, just a few verses to verse 3 of chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So first he begins chapter 15 reminding them of the gospel that he preached, that is what he says, what you receive, by what you stand, if indeed you hold fast to it. Unless you believed in vain is what he goes on to say. And then he breaks that down. What does he mean by that? For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. That first Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That last little phrase there is important. 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. So in other words, you can go and find them, seek them out yourself, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as the one untimely born, he also appeared to me. So Paul was personally compelled by his own personal testimony of the resurrected Christ. But not only that, he was personally compelled by the testimony of all these other brothers who had seen the resurrected Christ himself. His personal testimony was one of having been moved to repentance and action by the resurrected Christ himself on the Damascus Road. He's getting ready to go persecute more Christians, and eager about it, excited about it. And the resurrected Christ appears to him, speaks to him, blinds him, and tells him to turn from this life that he's living and to go and serve him. So when he delivered the gospel, that's Paul here, when he delivered the gospel and shared his own conversion, he couldn't help but shout of the historical reality of Christ's resurrection. But did you notice that it wasn't only that? It wasn't just the testimony of himself. It wasn't just the testimony of those who are still alive who had seen Christ. It wasn't the testimony of all those who had seen the resurrected Christ. He wanted every believer to be compelled, not just by the historical reality through the testimony, the personal testimony of him and others. He wanted all to be compelled by the testimony of Scripture. He wanted the Corinthian church and all believers, for that matter, to be equally, just as equally compelled that the resurrection of Christ was the pivotal moment in all of history. For this was the very thing that moved him from being a violent persecutor of the church to sharing the good news of salvation in the resurrected Christ. And therefore, the resurrection that comes in Christ, which we'll continue to get to as we move on. But I want to point out that that first point there on your outline. The resurrection of Christ is the central event in redemption history. And really, you could say all of history. And this is what what Paul was compelled of. This is the reality that moved him. I deliver to you as of first importance. I want us to be convicted of this church. And if you're not, again, it's my prayer that by the end of this service, you will be. Because we too easily allow ourselves to, be, to compartmentalize the resurrection. And you may not even realize this in your own life. Right? Because, like I said, this, we so easily allow this to happen. And here's what I mean by that. It's not that we don't believe the resurrection, although there are certainly those who don't and who proclaim to be brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not that we don't think that it's important. Again, there's some that don't think it's important. But I'm, I'm speaking to those that you believe the resurrection, you trust in the resurrection, you know that it's real, you think that it's important. But notice how easily we allow the resurrection to be isolated to this time of year on the calendar. Rather... 
than realizing the ongoing daily implications of what the resurrection means for our joy and hope in this life and the life to come. Paul was convinced that this was of the utmost importance, that the people of God see the resurrected Christ as displayed in the Word of God, as well as his personal testimony and the testimony of others. So, folks, this is what ought to embolden and empower us each and every day, that Christ lives. And this is why, in our portion of text for today, He is so displeased with this anti-resurrection thought that has seeped in the church. Paul is so compelled that he includes this toward the end of his letter. You know, as as we've been building up, he's continuing this idea of uniting in the advancement of the gospel. And he's so disgusted at this anti-resurrection thought that he commits such a great portion here of his letter to this single idea. And so you get, we jump back there into the text, back to verse 12, our text for today. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, so that's if Christ is preached as raised, if that's how you've known, if that's how you've heard of Christ, this is everything that you've been told, that Christ is raised from the dead. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Because if it's by our preaching, essentially this is what he's getting at. If it's by our preaching that you came to know and hear Christ, then what you believe is also in vain. So here's what we can deduce has happened in the Corinthian church, right? Because he doesn't explicitly say, I've heard this is happening, but he just goes straight into addressing the issue, right? So some of his letters, you know, sometimes he'll address whatever brothers are arguing or what's going on, but he doesn't necessarily do that here. So here's what we can deduce. Corinth was a very Greek city, right? Not to kind of overstate the obvious, right? But They were very, very Greek. So the Greek mindset and belief toward the afterlife was one of two lines of thought, right? Either believe, either you believe that you're going to the shadowy underworld of Hades, or you believe that nothing happened. These were the two main lines of thought in the Greek culture. So as the church in Corinth is growing, they were starting to have theological growing pains. As some people were coming, hearing of Christ, and they were coming into the church, but they were also bringing some of their preconceived notions, their misconceptions, some of their past life, their past thoughts, and kind of melding that with this new idea of who Christ was. So they're having some theological growing pains here. So some were coming to the faith, were coming in with ideas that they had in their former life. So Paul wants to remind them of what he preached and what they surrendered to. Paul was convicted of his having seen the resurrected Christ, but was compelled by the testimony of God's word. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. Now, if this is how Christ is proclaimed, 
How can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? I told you of my own encounter. I told you of how we see it proclaimed in accordance with the Scriptures. So how can some of you say that this is not so? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So there's no hope there. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain. Then I've just been wasting my time here. Right? And if, if my preaching is in vain, then your faith also is in vain. So not only did I see it in the blinding light and the booming voice, but I saw it in his word. Is what Paul wants them to know. So how can you say you have fellowship with him? How can you say you have fellowship with us if you don't believe it? Next point there on your outline. Our faith hinges on the resurrection, on the resurrected Christ. If Jesus is dead, our faith dies with him. If Jesus is dead, he's no different than any other self-proclaimed messianic figure or any other religious zealot that we've known, seen, or heard. I recently watched a conversation between famed Christian apologist William Lane Craig and the Jewish conservative political commentator Ben Shapiro. And in that conversation, the topic of the resurrection arises. And William Lane Craig gives a succinct and beautiful summary of why the resurrection is so important to the Christian faith and really for all people, why the resurrection, where you fall on that and why that matters. And Mr. Shapiro asks this in response. So when it comes to the resurrection, why is the resurrection proof of divinity? For instance, Lazarus is raised from the dead. So, I was not there at that conversation, believe it or not. And William Lane Craig did an excellent job addressing Shapiro's question. And, but the difference, Mr. Shapiro, is that Lazarus had to be buried again. The resurrection of Jesus was the stamp of affirmation from God the Father on all that Jesus claimed to be, said that he was, and all that Jesus did. Therefore, our faith hinges on that reality. And our faith is in vain if it's not true. And as you see, that's what Paul continues to get to. As you pick back up in verse 15. We are even found to be mis misrepresenting God because... If we testify about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is not true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, verse 16, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what Paul lays out with these rhetorical causation if-then statements is the complete hopelessness of life outside of knowing the resurrected Christ. 
So let's just walk through those. So we, I mean, he, he starts the if-then statements in verse 12, but let's just walk through some of those then that we just read from verses 15 to 19. So he, he lays out these if-then statements. If, if what? If Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain, we are found to be misrepresenting God. So the reality is he says then we have blasphemed God. Because we've said that it was God the Father who raised Christ from the dead. And so if what you're saying, misbelievers in Corinth, if what you're saying is true, then we've blasphemed God and we don't really know God in that sense. Because we've misrepresented him. We've, we've, what we've said is a, a simple lie, a caricature of who God is and what he's doing. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. What about the next if statement? So, next, verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So then our, our sin is unatoned for. We stand guilty of blaspheming God, misrepresenting Him, and we stand unatoned for, still dead in our sins, with no hope for salvation. You're beginning to see the bleak picture that Paul wants to build up here, right? So continue reading there. Verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So if Christ is dead, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are perished. If our sins are not atoned for, then all who have died in Christ are truly just that. They're dead. And everything that they had hoped for in that, gone. Everything that we've said lies beyond the weight of eternal glory. Yeah, guess what? We, we were making that up because if, if Jesus is truly dead then that's it. The next one, verse 19. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So if Christ is dead, then we deserve the pity of everyone. For we have been found putting all of our hopes into a lie. I gave up in, in Paul's own testimony, then I've given up everything. I had it all. I surrendered all of that for the sake of knowing Christ and Him crucified. And so, if what you're saying is true, then yeah, all of us, we deserve the pity of the world. And I want us to know this, church, to know it and to feel it. Because you can see Paul is, is he wants this picture to be bleak. In verses 12 through 19. Because of this. The next point there on your outline. There is no greater joy in this life than knowing the resurrected Christ. Why? Because in knowing the resurrected Christ, we see the vanities of this world as the wasteful destruction of ourselves. I make this statement all the time, that as Christians, we live with eternity in mind. 
And this is why we live with eternity in mind. We live with eternity in mind because Christ has won our eternity for his eternal glory through his death and resurrection. Paul goes on to add another one later on in verse 32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, if the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised as he's laid out, this bleak picture. And if Christ is not raised, let us instead of wasting our time believing these fables, let us instead waste our time drinking and eating, enjoying the temporary joys and pleasures of this life. Because there's nothing else for us to gain. So let us just live it up here. And here's the scary thing, church. We can and will find vain and fleshly temporary joys in this life. But what Paul wants the church to be confident in and to be sure of and to hold fast to and to preach boldly is that Christ is raised forevermore. Therefore, everything in this life is of temporary value in light of knowing the resurrected Christ. Because when you know the resurrected Christ and you're living with eternity in mind and eternity is your goal, then why waste time on such temporal, vain, fleshly things? And that's what he goes on to say, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, I want to point out two things here. First, notice how Paul has set this up so that in making this statement here in verse 20, he reverses the ifs of 12 through 19. Do you see that? So, Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead. How can you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So, Boom, number one, Christ has been raised. We settled that, verse 20. And if Christ has not been raised, but he has, our preaching, therefore, he says, is in vain if Christ hasn't been raised. But since Christ has been raised, then our preaching, you, you need to take heed of what we preach. And therefore, your faith is not in vain. So notice how the knots are switched. So we've not misrepresented God but instead, we've, we've clearly and concisely explained who God is according to how we've seen him in the resurrected Christ and in conjunction with his word. I appreciate you that of first importance according to the scriptures. He died and was raised. So notice how all the ifs of verses 12 through 19 are reversed because of the fact, the truth of Christ's resurrection. But the second thing that I want to point out to you is that, that term, first fruits, in verse 20. So here we see the namesake of this series, the first, right? To highlight his point, Paul calls Christ the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? This idea first comes from the Old Testament is where we see this term, first fruits, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where we see Moses reciting the law to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. And there he says, simply, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. 
So the first fruits here is that very first crop of ripe produce, which comes from your, your crop. And this first crop would be used so as to tell what the remaining crop was going to be like. Right? So the first fruits, you want to see, like, are we going to have a good crop? Are we going to have a bad crop? Is it going to be a good year, bad year? You know, what, what does that look like? And then for them, they're to take those first fruits and bring them as an offering into the storehouse of the Lord your God. So the first crop used to tell as a, as a litmus test, so to speak, of the rest of the crop. But it's also representing the offering of your first and best to the Lord. So that you're saying that everything else is of God's grace and blessing on you. So, Paul, in using this analogy here, is saying that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And as the first and best, now sitting at the right hand of God the Father, thus proving and providing the proof of the remaining crop to come. Which is what? Which is who? His church. And so that in Christ being the first fruits, His resurrection seals and guarantees those who come after Him and are in Him. And so this is where our hope lies. In the resurrection of Christ. That he is the first fruits and we are the crop to come. So the next point there on your outline, the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of joy for those found in him. For the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of eternity for those who are found in him. Therefore, there is no amount of earthly joy or pleasure that can satisfy the souls of those who are found in Christ. For we have full confidence that our ultimate joy is not here. That's what makes sacrificing on behalf of Christ worth it. That's what makes saying, I will not be conformed to the image of this world or the likeness of this world, worth it. So what makes saying, I will sacrifice being comfortable here for knowing that I will be comfortable there. That's what makes that worth it. That's what makes sacrificing whatever it takes to walk in obedience to the Great Commission worth it. I'm going to take a week out of my summer to go here. Yeah, that week is worth it in light of eternity. So that's going to cost how much? Well, You're not going to have that money with you in the grave. Because ultimately, nothing that we store up here is worth anything when compared with the joy of knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's what Paul wants the church to know. I deliver to you of first importance. So this next part, uh, I get real excited about this. You can ask Steve Martin. He came in my office on Thursday whenever I was kind of finalizing some of this, and I just kind of just, just kind of threw the whole sermon up on him. And uh, so this was Paul's source of joy. This was his strength. This was his confidence in every single ounce of suffering that he experienced for the sake of knowing Christ. In shipwreck, imprisonment, persecution, all of it, he said, is worth it. Why? Because he's living with eternity in mind. So turn to Acts chapter 26. Because I want you to see this. 
I knew Steve wouldn't be here, so I had to just tell him all of it in my office that day, right? He had to work this morning. He's out there protecting us. All right, Acts 26. So this is a very unique story, one of my favorite stories from the book of Acts. So Paul has been arrested and for the sake of preaching the gospel, but he's been unjustly arrested, right, on a couple of fronts. A, that he's not done anything wrong. B, he's also been, he's not been given a proper trial because he's a Roman citizen, right? And meanwhile, he's been desiring and just longing to go to Rome. And so he, he plays the system here. He knows that if he appeals to Caesar, they'll have to ship him to Rome. And since he knows he's innocent, when he pleads his case, he knows he'll be set free. And now he's gone to Rome on the government's dime, right? So Paul, he goes to appeal. He appeals that he needs to be brought to Caesar. But first, he's brought to King Agrippa, right? So he's brought to this King Agrippa. And here before Agrippa, he's told that he has permission to speak for himself here in chapter 26, And so he kind of schmoozes King Agrippa at first in verse 2. He says, I consider myself fortunate that it's before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews. And so he goes on, talking about his manner of life, what he's been doing, and how he's been wrongly accused. Talks about his own previous uh, life as a Pharisee, of the strictest party of our religion. I was willing to testify And he says in verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he begins to tell his testimony. And you get to verse 12, he starts to tell of his Damascus Road experience and seeing the resurrected Christ and hearing the resurrected Christ and everything that's happened in his life since then. So you jump to verse 19. Because right before this, he says that it's his job in delivering you from uh, what Christ has said to him on the Damascus road, delivering you from your people, from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, this is verse 18, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19, all right, pick it up. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. So that's what Christ told him on the Damascus road. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. So he's like, I've been preaching the gospel, right? Verse 21. For this reason, for simply preaching this message, for this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but the prophets, but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And so he, he stakes his, his foundation on what? God's word. That I have proclaimed nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I've done nothing but preach God's word, is what Moses said. That the Christ must suffer... And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. 
So this is what he said. I, I preach Christ crucified, just as we see in God's word. I preach Christ raised from the dead, just as we see in God's word. And then get this, verse 24. So the man who was part of the arresting party who brought him before King Agrippa, a member of the Jews, Festus, interrupts Paul and says this in verse 24. Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. So watch what Paul does here. For this has not been done in a corner. So Christ wasn't crucified in a corner. All of this has played out right in front of your eyes. Verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Verse 29, don't miss this. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. So his, his plea was, I preach Christ crucified, Christ resurrected, just as we see in Moses and the prophets. You believe the prophets, don't you, King Agrippa? And he says, whether it's short or long, however much time it takes, I will commit my life that everyone would know the resurrected Christ as seen in the word of God and in my testimony. Paul desired that all might be moved to repentance by seeing the grace of God the Father in the light of the death and resurrection of the cross. So move back there to our text in 1 Corinthians because this is what he continues to say, picking back up verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So what Paul's talking about here is not some spiritual resurrection. We go on to see in Ephesians 1 and what happens in our new birth and our new life where we come from death to life. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and you have now been brought to life in Christ Jesus, right? That's at our salvation. What Paul's talking about is our ultimate bodily resurrection in our glorification at the coming of Christ. And so he says this is is our confidence and hope. This is why we can sacrifice everything that this world says is valuable because we know the ultimate value, the ultimate joy is in knowing Christ and him crucified and resurrected and living in light of that reality. Many of you have partnered with my family and me in prayer over my grandfather and that means a great deal to me and you know when when my grandmother called when the incident first happened for those of you who may not know a limb fell on my grandfather's head and um there was it was very scary so uh yeah I, I could hear the shakiness in my grandmother's voice and my mom herself who's a nurse said just i wasn't sure in that moment how things were going to pan out 
And so, I, so therefore, I could not help but fear the worst as I rounded up my family and we headed to Tyler just not knowing what, we, what I was driving into. And I, I love my grandparents. I, it is one of the sweetest blessings of God's grace that I've been able to have the long and healthy and just good relationship with my grandparents that God has blessed me with. And just, just a great mom and great grandparents. And my papa is my guy, right? There's been so many times in my life where that's been shown. In fact, whenever uh, my voice first changed, whenever I was a teenager, and I would answer the phone at their house, people would think that I was him. And they would just start talking, Nathan, did you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'd be like, I'd just sit there and I'd listen. This isn't Nathan, right? <laughs> like, so when I feared that I was driving to Tyler to tell him goodbye, I found myself strangely at peace. And I was grieved at the thought, for sure, but I was at peace. I was at peace because our ultimate joy is not found in knowing the things or clinging to the relationships of this life, but in the life to come. And you only get to that point by knowing the resurrected Christ. Because in no one else, in no thing else, is there an eternal hope beyond this life. And that's why the final point that you see there in your outline is that we are compelled to live in the joy of the resurrected Christ. To finish, I want to point you to Romans 6 as we wrap things up. Romans 6, Paul's talking about how we are dead to sin. And we have peace by God through faith, how death reigned in Adam, and we have life in Christ. But then he says, so what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So we're living in grace, so we, we just get to go on enjoying the fruits of this world, enjoying the joys of this world, pleasing ourselves by what we see here. And he says, verse 2, by no means, this is Romans 6, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So as we come to faith in Christ, we are raised from the death of our trespasses and sin, raised to walk in a new life. For we have, verse 5, so that's, that's, that's coming, that's our salvation. But then he gets to further, he takes it a step further in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free of sin. So this is dying to sin, living in Christ. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So this is what it means to be a believer, to live with eternity in mind through knowing the resurrected Christ. So we are compelled to live in that joy and find joy nowhere else. 
So if you're here this morning and you've been finding joy in the temporary fleshly pleasures of this life, I would call you to repent and submit and know the resurrected Christ. Now, if you're here and you know the resurrected Christ, but you've been tempted time and time again to, to pursue those temporary pleasures, my call to you is the same. Repent and find yourself anew invigorated by knowing the resurrected Christ. First is a call to salvation, that first call that is made. And the second one is a call to deeper and further sanctification, right? So I'm not calling you to be saved again or anything like that. Please don't miss here, okay? But we are compelled to live in the joy of the resurrected Christ. So let us do so, church. Let me pray. God, we love you, and we thank you for the joys and the implications and the ongoing emboldening power that comes through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. I pray that you would help us to live in that reality. I pray that as we now enter into our time of response, that you would move hearts to respond accordingly. That those who need to respond in salvation, you are drawing to yourself, that you would move their feet in obedience and repentance. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who know you, know the power of your resurrection, trusted in it, that you would overwhelm them with these truths and help them and compel them to live in the joy of knowing the resurrected Christ. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.